today on The Voice of Prophecy, a greater love than anything you'll ever see on the Hallmark Channel. Welcome to The Voice of Prophecy, coming to you from the beautiful city of Loveland, Colorado, nestled up against the Rocky Mountains. I'm your host, Sean Boonstra, and today I'm going to be continuing with a project that's just a few weeks old. I'm actually reading my way through the book of Revelation, and I'm taking enough time to really digest what the author is saying. So I'm kind of going at a snail's pace. We're moving very slowly. Because there's so much depth to the book of Revelation that you really need to slow down and pay attention to details. Because this is one of those books of the Bible where the details are absolutely critical. Now, I don't think we're going to study Revelation every single week because there's so much more to the Bible and there's so much more happening in the world that I really want to pay attention to. But from time to time, I'll keep coming back to the book of Revelation. And what I'm hoping is that over time, we'll cover all, or at least most, of what the book of Revelation says. We are, after all, the voice of prophecy. And by the time I'm finished, I want you to be able to download all the podcasts and kind of have this blow-by-blow, detailed study of the whole book. Now, that's my goal, and it's kind of a lofty goal. And I'm not sure how long it's going to take, but this is what I'm going to work on today. So, you might want to go and grab a Bible and follow along. I want you to look at the texts as we read them. Because studying the book of Revelation is kind of like having God pull back the curtains of the universe and show you these things that, well, they defy the imagination. And and here's what I want to promise you. This is a book that you can actually understand. Once you put aside all the sensationalistic books and movies, and you go back and look at the original first century context... And once you take Revelation and place it in the broader biblical context, this book is actually fairly easy to grasp. Of course, there's so much depth to it that you might be studying this the rest of your life, but the essential concepts, the basic stuff, it's actually pretty easy to understand. Now, do I understand everything in the book of Revelation? No, absolutely not. But I do understand the big, broad themes, and I want to give you a chance to understand them as well. This book is understandable. It's just that over the last 200 years or so, the Christian world has kind of abandoned its historic understanding of how we ought to study this. For 1,800 years, there was widespread agreement, almost universal agreement, on the basic approach to Revelation. But since the early 1800s, we've really seen this tectonic shift that, frankly, has produced an awful lot of confusion. So what we're going to do with this study is go back to the basics. We're going to go back to the way people used to read this book. And I think you're going to see that this approach still makes sense, even in the 21st century. In in fact, it might actually make more sense, because some of the stuff described in this book, especially the middle part, chapters 12, 13, and 14, that stuff's actually playing out right now. But we'll get to all of that in time. Now, if you're just coming in on this study for the first time today, you might want to go to our website, vop.com, or go to iTunes and look for the Voice of Prophecy, and grab the first few studies so you can catch up, and then you won't have missed a thing. Now, today we're partway through chapter 1. In fact, we're halfway through a verse, chapter 1 and verse 5. 
In our last study, we looked at these three titles John gives Jesus in the first part of verse 5. He calls him the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and ruler over the kings of the earth. And then we ran out of time last time, and I left off right there in the middle of the verse. What we saw was this amazing salutation from the real author of Revelation to the seven churches. It was a greeting from God to believers. And now John pauses to pay respect to God, to give tribute to the author and underline how important this message really is. So I want to pick up now halfway through Revelation 1, verse 5. Here's what it says. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, that brings the salutation to a close. When you and I write a letter, or at least in the old days when we used to write real letters, we were far more succinct. I mean, we used to say, Dear Mike, or Dear Mom, or Dear Grandma, and that was it. You started in on the letter. But this message is far too important for a quick greeting. The content of this letter is really directed at all believers of all time. And the content is so important, so critical, that John goes out of his way to make sure we all understand exactly who wrote this book. The author is the one who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now, if you have a Bible with marginal notes, say you have a study Bible, you might notice that the people who translated this particular verse into English have suggested that the word loved might not be the only or even the best translation. To put it in the present tense, it might be more accurate to speak of Jesus as the one who loves us, not who loved us. Now, of course, they probably translated this in the past tense because it's talking about the cross, that specific moment when Jesus actually shed his blood to save the human race. But the reality is that Christ's love for you did not stop that day. And what Jesus does for you is much bigger than a single moment in time. Even though Jesus has already paid the entire cost of your salvation, even though his gift on the cross covers your sins in full and there's nothing you can do to help pay for the debt, the cross is really only part of the picture. Now, naturally, it's a huge part of the picture. If it wasn't for the cross, you would not be on your way to the kingdom. But that is not everything that Jesus does. It's not as if he rose from the dead, went back to heaven, and now he's taking a well-earned vacation. Jesus is still working for you. He's still doing something to make sure you make it into his kingdom. And what exactly is that? What is Jesus doing now? Well, you want to keep your finger here in Revelation chapter 1 because we will come back. But for a moment, go back to Hebrews chapter 9, where the Bible explains exactly what Jesus has been doing for the last 2,000 years. Listen to this now in Hebrews 9, verse 24. It says, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands. That's a reference to the earthly temple, which no longer exists. Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true. In other words, the earthly temple in Jerusalem was actually a copy of something else, something bigger, something better. Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now that statement right there, 
might just be one of the biggest keys to understanding the book of Revelation. What it's telling us is that the earthly temple, the earthly sanctuary, was actually pointing forward to the work of Christ in our behalf. The temple was an object lesson, a teaching tool, designed to show the plan of salvation well in advance of the day that Jesus would actually come and walk the face of this earth. The little lambs that the Israelites sacrificed, they all pointed forward to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the priests who carried the blood of sacrificial animals into the temple also pointed forward to Jesus, who is now serving as our great high priest in front of the throne of the Father. So, Jesus is the Lamb. He's the sacrificial victim. And he's the priest who offers the sacrifice. Now, I'm up against a break that I'm going to have to take. So I'm going to let you mull that thought over for a moment. Jesus is the lamb, the sacrificial victim, and he's the priest who offers the sacrifice. I want you to think about that, and then I'll come back to unpack it just a little bit more. So don't go away. We're about to look at one of the biggest keys to understanding the book of Revelation. Hello, I'm Jean Boonstra. Do you feel as if you have more questions than answers in your life? Are you searching for answers to some of life's biggest questions? Well, the Discover Bible Guides can help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or call us at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. And welcome back. You are listening to the Voice of Prophecy. My name is Sean Boonstra, and today we are reading our way through the book of Revelation. Now, just before we took a break, I was looking at Jesus as both the sacrificial victim for sin. We were looking at the way that the sacrificial lambs in the Old Testament were pointing forward to Jesus. And we were looking at Jesus as the priest who actually offers the sacrifice. In other words, nobody took Jesus' life from him. He willingly gave it. He willingly died to save you. Now, that doesn't exactly indemnify us. You and I are still guilty of murdering God's Son. But the Bible teaches that nobody forced Jesus into this situation. The book of Revelation actually calls Jesus the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, which means that God decided on a plan to save us even before he created us. If we were to sin, and that was a really big if because we didn't have to do it, if we sinned, there was a plan to save us. Nobody took the life of Jesus. This was something he decided to give us himself. That's why Jesus says in John chapter 10 and verse 17, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. In John chapter 15, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Jesus didn't have his life taken from him. Jesus gave it. The cross of Christ is the ultimate act of love. There's just no way that God somehow owes us salvation. I mean, when we walked out of Eden, when we turned our backs on God, we made a well-informed decision. We were told that sin would lead to death. We might have doubted the consequences. We might have doubted what God said, but God was perfectly clear. So did God owe us the cross? Absolutely not. But did God want to do it? Did God want to save us? Well, the answer is yes. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. 
It was an act of love, an act of compassion, an act of God, a God who doesn't think his universe would ever be complete if you were missing. But in Revelation, if the translator's notes are accurate, the love of Christ didn't stop at the cross. That's not all he did. As all-important as the death and resurrection of Jesus are to your salvation, this is not all that God does for you. The book of Hebrews says that after Jesus returned to heaven, he became the great high priest in heaven's sanctuary. It turns out the earthly temple was just a shadow of something in heaven. And this is a point that the book of Hebrews makes again and again and again. It makes it abundantly clear if you just read the whole thing, particularly chapters 8 and 9. Ever since the cross, Jesus has been appearing in the presence of God for you. Because even though the price has been paid at the cross, you still have the ability to choose. God doesn't force people into the kingdom of heaven. God believes in free moral agency. He believes in freedom of conscience. He doesn't want people to just to live in his kingdom because they have no other choice. He wants you to be there. Just the way you want your spouse to be with you because he or she wants to be there. Not because they have no other choice. So, you and I have to want the gift of Christ. We have to confess our sins. We have to ask God to forgive us. And after that, we've got to turn the keys over to God and let Him start reshaping our personal agenda. You have to let God drive. Because salvation is not just a legal transaction. Salvation is a long-term relationship and a complete process of restoration. Day by day, God continues to work on your heart. Day by day, He chisels away the rough edges of your character. He helps you become more and more like Jesus. He teaches you to love the things you used to hate and hate the things you used to love. And He holds us and preserves us and cares for us until the day that Jesus comes back to get us. And and that's why the present tense is so appropriate in Revelation 1, verse 5. This is not just a tribute to the one who loved us in the past. It's a tribute to the one who continues to love us. It's a tribute to the one who will never leave us or forsake us. Unto him who loved us or loves us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now, right there, in the last half of that statement, you find the most profound concept in the Bible. And this is something so big that you could spend the rest of your life studying this and never get to the end of it. In fact, Believers and Bible scholars have been studying this concept of salvation through the blood of Christ for 2,000 years, and they've never run out of stuff to examine. It's a little bit like the whole universe. The more you study through a telescope or a microscope, the more you see. The bigger it gets, the more profound it becomes. It is so big. In fact, the idea of Jesus saving us at the cross is so big that I'm convinced that you and I will continue to study that subject well past the day that we actually arrive in the kingdom. And the question is this, what exactly did Jesus accomplish at the cross? The simple answer is one that children know. They've learned it for generations. Jesus paid for my sins. And it's true. He did. But how did Jesus pay for my sins? Why does the cross solve my problem? Why did Jesus have to go that route? Now, I'm not going to pretend that I can answer that question with the time that I've got left, but I do want to say this. I've heard about a dozen different theories about what actually happened at the cross. 
Some Bible scholars will say that Jesus took care of our legal problem. You and I are sinners who cannot have access to the kingdom of God, and we are living under the legal consequences of sin, and that's a death sentence. So the cross of Christ is a legal solution. It solves the problem of how God can let us back without violating the just penalty for what we've done. But another Bible scholar will tell you that the cross is an outlet for God's anger or wrath over sin. And then another Bible scholar will tell you that the cross is just a display of God's love, that if you look at the cross carefully, you begin to understand the true selfless nature of God's character and the sheer magnitude of his love, and that begins to change who you are. And then there are other Bible scholars with even more opinions. But what's interesting about all these different options, all these different concepts, is the way that some people seem to insist that only one of them can be true. Either Jesus paid for your sins, or he displayed his loving character. They say, either Jesus is your legal, penal substitute, or he's an example of love, a pattern of love that you should follow. But honestly, as I read through the Bible, I think we're making a huge mistake when we try to boil the cross down to a single idea, when we try and pigeonhole it into one human theory. What Jesus accomplished at the cross is so big, so profound, that it really encompasses a lot of different things. Jesus did pay your penalty, the Bible's clear. And he showed us what real love looks like, that is also clear. Jesus did offer himself as your substitute, and his life is an example for you to follow. You just can't treat the cross like it's an exercise in taxonomy, because it just doesn't fit into a single exclusive category that we invent. When different Bible scholars see different aspects to the cross of Christ, almost all of them are getting their material from the Bible. They can back up what they're saying with Scripture. And I say almost all of them because there are a few wackadoodle ideas out there that just don't fit what Scripture teaches at all, and those are the dangerous ideas because those are the ones that have the potential to confuse people and actually keep them from understanding how salvation works. But, but for the most part, aside from the Cracker Jacks, aside from the weirdos, you should be very careful when people start to say that the cross of Christ is only this and not that. Because the cross is too big for one category. So to suggest that Jesus displayed his love on the cross, but he didn't die as your substitute, that's dangerous thinking. Because somebody's going to say, oh well, God is really loving, so I don't have to do anything. He'll just handle this for me. And then they never repent of their sins. They just keep on living like nothing is wrong, and they never understand that Jesus took their penalty for them. Now, on the other side of the coin, if you do understand that Jesus is your substitute, that his blood covers your sins, but you don't come to grips with the fact that he expects you to emulate his loving, self-sacrificial character, that he wants you to imitate him, well, then you might never grow in your faith. You fail to understand that Jesus is still working in your behalf in heaven's sanctuary. So, it's really important that we don't try to force the cross into these tidy little theological pigeonholes that are much smaller than the truth. Now, for our study today, if there's one thing that John makes abundantly clear, it's that the blood of Christ washes us from our sins. He makes it clear that without the sacrificial death of Christ, you and I have no hope. There was no other way. Jesus had to die. Because God makes it perfectly clear in Hebrews 9 that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Now, I know that in the 21st century Western world, that's an uncomfortable concept. 
You and I don't want to believe that the consequences of sin are that severe. You and I are used to having a court-appointed psychiatrist explain why someone has no choice but to commit a heinous crime. You and I try to explain wicked behavior to the point where it's practically justified. But is that the case with sin? Well, I'm up against another break, but hang in there and wait for me, because this concept is just too important to miss. I'll be right back. Hello, I'm Jean Boonstra. Do you feel as if you have more questions than answers in your life? Are you searching for answers to some of life's biggest questions? Well, the Discover Bible Guides can help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or call us at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. And we are back. And just before the break, I was saying that you and I have this tendency to downplay the consequences of sin by trying to find reasons we had no choice. Honestly, though, you can't really explain sin. You can't really find a good reason that you had to do something contrary to the will of God, because if you can explain sin, you've justified it, and there is no justification. One Christian writer back in the 19th century put it like this. She wrote, Sin is an intruder for whose presence no reason can be given. It is mysterious, unaccountable. To excuse it is to defend it. Could excuse for it be found, or cause be shown for its existence, it would cease to be sin. Unquote. I think that's absolutely accurate. The fact is, there is no good reason to sin against God. You can't excuse sin. And and it's become such a part of who we are that we actually fail to realize just how serious our sins are, what a threat our sins are to God's once perfect universe. When God says the wages of sin is death, when he says it's that serious, you and I should probably listen. And I know it hurts our pride to think that the only way God can take us back is for someone to pay the price for my sin. And I know that we have this tendency to take that information and twist it and start talking about God as if he's just like the bloodthirsty gods of pagan mythology, the ones who demanded death to keep them appeased. But a careful study of the cross makes it really obvious that God is not some kind of cruel dictator who demands violence. It's a silly concept. Because God gave his only son. God suffered unimaginably to keep us from having to pay the price for our own rebellion. So banish the thought that God is bloodthirsty or cruel. It's just not true, and it doesn't match the biblical data. But at the same time, be very careful not to downplay just how serious sin is. There is a reason sin ends in death, because it poses far too much of a threat to the long-term peace and happiness of God's entire universe. You can't live in opposition to the moral principles of God's universe and expect good results. You can't demand to run your own life and expect that God's universe has to bow to your whims. Now, for right now, God is allowing us to go our own way because he's still holding out hope that we'll come home. He's still hoping that you will be a part of his long-term plan. But never forget, sin is a willful act on our part to separate ourselves from the source of all life. God didn't make this mess. We did. And we can't expect to go on living if we don't want the source of life in our lives. 
And a loving God isn't going to allow the incredible suffering we've created to go on forever. So the wages of sin is death. It is the only just conclusion for this whole mess. Now, that's also a bigger concept than I have time for today. But for right now, it's important to understand that the blood of Christ is your only hope. Our problem is too big to fix ourselves. And a loving, just God cannot just abandon His moral law because we think He should. His law is a reflection, a picture of who He is. And God's not going to change Himself just because we think we know better. The, the truth is, you and I have broken the moral law of God. And the only just conclusion for that act, the only just conclusion for you and me, beings who have tried to alter the moral fabric of the universe, the only just conclusion is to simply be put out of existence. There is a legal consequence to sin. And honestly, if God had simply wiped us out the day we did it, the day we rebelled, he probably would have been perfectly justified. But the amazing thing is, I mean, the thing that is so beautiful, so hard to grasp, the thing I'm convinced you'll be studying for all eternity, is that God himself became one of us. And he came to this world, and he lived without sinning. And then he went to the cross in my place, in your place. You and I are so loved by God that he washed us with his blood. And again, if you have a Bible, a study Bible with marginal notes, you'll see that that word washed could also be translated to say that Jesus set us free. We've been liberated by the cross. We were slaves to sin. You and I were condemned by what we did. We've been doomed to eternal destruction, and we have been slaves to the one who laid claim to this planet, to the devil himself. And we've been slaves to our own sinful tendencies. And we've been slaves to the fear of death. The blood of Jesus, the Bible teaches, sets us free. Now that's the all-important context for the whole book of Revelation. If you don't read this whole book with the cross of Christ at the very center, you're never going to understand it. Everything that comes after this passage is completely meaningless if you haven't accepted the gift of Christ. What you read in the rest of this chapter and all the way through to the end of Revelation is not going to make a lick of sense until you come to grips with the terms of your real relationship with God, until you come to grips with how you are reconciled to God, until you come to grips with the terms and conditions of salvation. You can't earn your salvation. You have to accept it as a gift. You can't pay your own way into the kingdom. There's no way you have the resources. You have to accept that Jesus paid it for you, and you have to let him wash you. You have to give him the reins of your life and accept his sacrifice at Calvary. Without that, the book of Revelation, it's just facts. Without that, the book of Revelation is just a conversation piece. You may as well make another sensationalistic TV show about it because it's practically meaningless if you don't have the cross. But with the cross, this book is going to open up horizons you never dreamt possible. Now, I'm out of time. We're going to have to pick it up again on another episode. So thanks for listening today. I'm Sean Boonstra, and this has been The Voice of Prophecy. 
Hello, I'm Jean Boonstra. As we continue our study of Revelation, it's like unfolding a story and finding out how all the pieces fit together. Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross was the beginning of a new life for me, and for you, too. And that isn't the end of the story. Jesus is still our advocate, working for each and every one of us. And the rest of your story is still to be told. If you have questions about the unfolding of your life story, I know where you can begin to find answers. The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers that you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at our toll-free number, 888-456-7933, for your free Discover Bible Guides. The 26 Discover Guides cover a whole range of subjects, including the ones we've been talking about today. If you'd like to know more about how to have a second chance at life, a new start, guide number six gives you a biblical guide to do just that. And if you have questions about the Holy Spirit and His role in your day-to-day life, guide number 11 answers those questions too. So give us a call at 888-456-7933 or visit us online to begin your journey to discover answers to life's deepest questions.